Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Parallel Lives, The True Story of Lizzie Borden, Part 1. So, you think you know all about Lizzie Borden? I beg to differ. Unless you have read the book, Parallel Lives, A Social History of Lizzie A. Borden and Her Fall River written by Michael Martins and Dennis Bennett. Or, unless you have had the pleasure, as I did, of sitting down with them and hearing the unvarnished true story of Lizzie Andrew Borden, told by the curators of the Fall River Historical Society. In Part 1, you will become acquainted with the backdrop against which Lizzie Borden grew up. You will also hear many myths dispelled, some I held myself, and details of her life not found in any other book. Enjoy the experience. I sure did. Let's start with either one of you telling us a little bit about your background um, and how you know you came to become uh, curators of this wonderful museum. So I started with the Historical Society in 1978, actually. And at that point, I was 13 years old and met Florence Brigham, and we hit it off immediately. And um, long story short, I stayed with Mrs. Brigham doing tours a number of years and um, ultimately became curator of the Historical Society at her behest, really, and sort of took over the reins from there. And um, when I was 25, I was appointed curator of the Historical Society. Florence Brigham stayed on at that point and worked with us pretty much up until her death in 2000. She was 100 years old and um, have been here ever since. And we've done amazing things with the collection. The Historical Society has a large collection of material pertaining to the history of Fall River. The organization will be 100 years old in 2021. So it's a massive collection. The Borden Collection is a small portion of that collection. However, it is the most significant collection of Borden-related material extant. And certainly over the years here, I met a number of people who were closely uh, associated or in some ways, um, um, very close to Lizzie Borden. So uh, I think it gave me somewhat of a, uh, perhaps a different perspective on Lizzie's story in the Borden case, simply because to many of the people that I met who certainly were in their 80s and 90s then, it was very real to them. It was something that really was not discussed a whole lot. Mrs. Brigham was brought up not to discuss it. She discussed it here by virtue of her position. She had no choice, but it certainly was not her favorite subject by by any means, and in some cases, she was bewildered by the whole thing. But of course, knew considerably more than I think she ever said publicly, and then I, that I, I know she knew more than she ever said publicly. So, so I've been here for for a long time. We've we've um, made some pretty amazing strides with with the collections. Have added to the collections extensively. So it is a it's an amazing place. Dennis, yes, um, I've been here for twenty seven years. 
Uh, yeah, but it's, it's long-term. <laughs> but uh, my background's in English literature, and uh, oddly enough, I worked in finance uh, for my first job out of college, and until finally in 1991, uh, I was downsized by the company I was working for, and uh, had a lot of time on my hands, came here to volunteer, and uh, eventually uh, stayed on, uh, first doing research in the archive, and then uh, through baptism by fire, uh, doing... So the organization was founded in 1921, not on this location, but actually in the old Buffington building, which was in the center of town. In 1928, the Buffington building, which was supposedly fireproof, burned. It was a victim of the 1928 fire. So the Historical Society lost its entire collection, anything that was collected between 1921 and um, late in 1928. It was all lost, uh, save a few items that were in the safe. So the Historical Society immediately ban began collecting again um, in rented rooms. In 1935, Miss Elizabeth Hitchcock Brayton passed away. She was one of the founding members of the Historical Society. She left her home to her nephew, who in turn donated it to the Historical Society in memory of his aunt, Elizabeth. So the Historical Society moved into this building in 1937 and has been housed here ever since. The collections are vast, so we're both a historic house museum and a museum of regional and local history. We have a number of different collecting categories. To give you an idea of the scope of the Society's collection, we're talking about in excess of half a million objects, including manuscripts and photographs. Um, the costume collection, for example, would be in excess of 3,000 items of clothing. Uh, going back to the late 17th century, the earliest documented piece are a pair of wedding slippers uh, worn by a local woman in 1766. There are well over 50,000 photographs uh, in the collection dating back to the dawn of photography. We have a large collection of decorative arts. So really the, the, the um, collection is across the board in every collecting category. The building itself is remarkable because we have a number of pieces still in situ. So a number of pieces are original to the house. The stenciling in this house is remarkable. It's some of the finest 19th century polychrome stenciling in southeastern Massachusetts. It is extremely well preserved. So we're a stop usually every other year with the Victorian Society of America. And so a number of people come in, not only for the Borden collection, but for the other collections as well. So Dennis, let me ask you, uh, let's turn to the book, which is a magnificent book. We certainly want to be uh, in, in, in a labor of love, I'm sure. Um, and since you're the English guy, uh, <laughs> so um, parallel lives. So um, let's start with uh, the most simple thing. What, where the, the, what, what's the title mean? Uh, the complete title is Parallel Lives, A Social History of Lizzie Borden, A. Lizzie A. Borden, sorry about that, and Her Fall River. Um, and the, and it's, it says exactly what the book is. The intention was, and Michael and I talked about this quite a bit before we even started working on it, the intention was to dispel a lot of the myths, to paint uh, Liz, a picture of Lizzie Borden as a woman against the backdrop of her city, uh, which was what she knew as home. And uh, we did that through um, extensive research on Lizzie herself, uh, uncovering a lot of new material and also uh, using the collections here and other things that we uh, called um, to tell the story of Fall River, uh, the social history of the city, uh, to give a sense of uh, what was the environment 
um, in Fall River during her lifetime. And the parallel lives part of it is that, oddly enough, you can trace the rise of Fall River down to the devastation of Fall River in 1928 through the fire to Lizzie Borden's life being born in 1860 and dying right before the fire in 1927. They run hand in hand. Most books or most studies start with the night, the day, maybe they'll go a week be, before and that's it. And they don't talk about what was the social uh, constructs, what, you know, what was, what, you know, was her day-to-day um, -day life like based on the times, which are, we can be historians, but it's so different from where we are today. It is. And, and the concept itself was surprisingly simple to tell this woman's story against the backdrop of the city in which she lived her life. But no one had, no one had attempted it, surprisingly, because it is such a, a simple concept. And I think that, that the fact that we tried to tell the story from beginning to end and tried to sort of delve into some areas that had not been explored um, gave, gave people a different picture of Fall River and certainly of, of the Borden family and, and, and Lizzie Borden. Um, as, as Dennis said at one point, the this, this story really was always told in black and white and we tried to give it a little color. And, and as you, I think you alluded to uh, a little bit ago, that that a lot of your um, um, research or a lot of your documentation is from people who obviously were now 125, 130. Nobody's alive. Everyone's gone. Right? I know there is still someone alive. Yes. That that literally was alive. How old are they? Well, there's a woman living, the last person living that we know of who knew Lizzie. And she's okay. well into her 90s now. She Again, was, we've got to go, okay, I'm, I'm trying to put it at Lizzie's birth, but that person would obviously... Can, knew her can as an elderly as woman. An, yes. as an, as well, an, not even elderly. I but mean, as, an adult, as an adult. As an adult. Yeah. But you also obviously have uh, spoken to uh, relatives who are a little bit closer than somebody removed to have no relation to her at all. Of course. Um, because I was here at such a young age and came to know a number of people who were closely associated, members of the Jennings family, for example, or um, descendants of very close friends of Lizzie Borden's, or people who had grown up calling Lizzie Auntie Borden. Because I, I knew a number of these people, or knew the children of people who were principals in the case, it made some of that research that much easier because when Dennis and I started the project, we had an idea as to where to go looking for material. And many of these sources were, were untapped. We had access to the material by virtue of the connection with the historical society. But surprisingly, no one else had even made the attempt in many cases to identify these people, I, I think, because they did not know where to look. And it's, you guys have said that um, um, this stuff is before the MERS, and there's things out there. Again, in a book, you will uh, get something very black and white. She went on a grand tour of Europe. That's right. It. But you have postcards or what? I forget what they well, were. We, we found her travel albums. I'm sorry. That was just called. That was travel album. So tell us about the travel yeah, albums. So, so Lizzie had traveled on the Scythia to Europe on a grand tour. And in the past, it was simply she traveled to Europe on a grand tour in the Scythia with a certain number of individuals whose names had been in the newspaper. And in the course of our research, we found in a private collection two albums 
that contained photographs and the photographs were the photographs that she purchased while she was in Europe. These were the days before postcards. Postcards were not really invented until a couple of years after Lizzie's tour. And so one would purchase photographs of the sites they visited. And um, so Dennis and I were, were at, at, a, at a, home, a home looking at some material. And it makes good sense as to why these albums were where they were. Um, and this particular person had told us that they had um, postcard albums. And so, Dennis, we were sitting in the house, and what happened? Well, uh, they took out these absolutely beautiful um, albums that were meticulously assembled uh, with um, inscriptions in Lizzie's hand underneath every photograph, either personal impressions, uh, quotes from literature, or oddly enough, uh, and uh, just jumping ahead a little bit, since then, we have also acquired through a gift from uh, one of our benefactors, um, her travel guide with indications throughout of all of the places that she went to and also circled in pencil descriptions that she copied and wrote into her photograph albums. Tell us about the, 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 the lines that you can see where she... The pencil lines, or no? So when she assembled the the albums, Lizzie Lizzie Borden was meticulous in her person and and, and in the manner that she conducted herself, really, especially later in her life. And this clearly was something that was the norm for her. So when you look at the albums, which are beautiful, deluxe albums, certainly the best money could buy at the time. Clearly, when she purchased these two albums, there was no concern as to what they would cost. She bought the best she possibly could. And they're, they're beautiful to this day. They're, they're magnificent. And she was so precise, so very faintly, she would pencil in ruled lines and then write her inscriptions. And then once that ink was good and dry, she carefully erased those pencil lines. But if you hold them and look at them in the right light, you can see evidence of these of these lines. So everything is so precise. Yeah, because the pages had a certain finish to them. And wherever she erased a line away, that finish was dulled. Now, um, there are um, the other things that are just generally uh, in, in books uh, written about her are uh, that is, you know, extant for all of us are letters she wrote from from jail waiting for her trial. Yes. There are letters out there that she wrote to Anne. Is it an Anne? Was so one of the, the letters are, of course, before Parallel Lives, there were only a few letters in Lizzie Borden's hand, and all of the letters were primarily sort of social. There was not riveting content really in any of them, certainly content that people speculated about, which was absurd. But so one of the things that we tried to do was uncover material, knowing that there likely was additional material out there. So the, the so-called prison letters, which were sent to her friend um, Annie Pawthorne Sheen Lindsay, are fascinating because those we really did not know that they, they existed. So um, Annie Sheen Lindsay was a close friend of Lizzie's. They grew up together. She was the sister of um, Florence Cook Brigham's mother-in-law, Mary Ella Sheen Brigham. She was closer in age to Lizzie and was, was quite friendly. And so the Brigham family had lost track of their Lindsay relatives because they spent all of their time in Europe. 
Mr. William Lindsay, Fulver man, became extremely successful and was a multimillionaire and made a fortune. And his descendants spent all of their time in Europe. In fact, Annie, who, who Lizzie knew, was presented to Queen Mary. So they traveled in very exalted circles and socially were extremely prominent. And so when we realized who Mrs. Lindsay was, we tried to, to track the family down. Florence Brigham had tried unsuccessfully for a number of years, and it was only by chance that we found the family. It was interesting because the Italian Postal Service is notoriously slow. <laughs> and so um, I found a fragment of a name and an address. Mm, street, no number. Street, no number. No postal code. And so <laughs> I wrote a letter. We had given up. We'd given up on We had a file of, of people we were trying to identify that we'd given up on. And when the book was, we thought, pretty much finished, and this, of course, was a decade-long project, we sort of revisited this file, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to try one more time. I went through some old notes that I, that I had and some, some material that I had from, from Florence Brigham and found this sort of fragmentary address and name and thought, you know, what, what, what the hell, I'm, I'm going to write a note. And so I, I wrote a note and put on what we realized later was a very fragmentary address, put some postage on it and mailed it and thought we would never hear back or that it would be returned. And surprisingly, I had include, included an email address. And surprisingly, just a, a few days later, I had an email from a woman in Italy. And it said, indeed, I am the person you are looking for. Granny said she held Lizzie Borden's hand throughout the trial. And so we began correspondence. She's absolutely delightful. And it, it's funny, she's She's in, in, in Italy, and um, we've taken several groups from the Historical Society to Italy, and they, they, have a, a, they have a place on Capri. And so when we were in Rome, she was on Capri, and when we were at Capri, she was in Rome. So we didn't see her in Italy, but she did come here to see us, and she's lovely. So in the course of, of working with her, she said she had some letters, and she was willing to share those letters and was delighted that someone was going to tell her grandmother's story. And then when the letters arrived, copies of the letters, from the dates, it was clear that a number of them were sent from Lizzie Borden's prison cell. The Historical Society has since acquired those letters. They're now in the Historical Society's collection, so uh, we, we do have them. Um, and the letters are fascinating because it was the first insight that anyone had other than speculation or, or old press, the first insight anyone had into Lizzie's thoughts when she was at the jail in Taunton. And certainly the letters were sent to a very close friend. They were never intended to be published and they're very poignant letters. So Dennis, um, why don't you tell me a little bit about, um, we'll lead up to, to the, you know, the, the infamous day, but some things about Leslie's life that you you do know, um, like her schooling, her 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 friends, her her social activities. I know she was involved with religious or with uh, uh, charitable organizations prior to the day. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting because um, her early years uh, were pretty much a blank slate. 
and uh, it was it was said that she was kept out of circulation that she was odd and um, we were fortunate enough in our <laughs> search for material to uh, stumble on diaries kept by a young girl uh, named Louisa Holmes Stillwell uh, nicknamed Luli and um, just in, in flipping through and kind of scanning the diaries, um, if, if you can call scanning something written in pencil with no punctuation whatsoever, um, Lizzie Borden's name came up repeatedly. And for the first time, we had a look at what Lizzie Borden's younger years were like. They were contemporaries. They were in high school together in um, Lizzie's early years in school. And she lived a normal adolescent life. Uh, she made May baskets. She went riding. Um, she went uh, in the carriage on the on the Borden farm in Swansea, and um, hung around at the Borden house with um, um, Adams, uh, um, Almy, Rachel Almy, uh, oh, and they actually hung around the Borden house. Uh, Rachel Almy and Luli and Lizzie. Uh, which is something you don't really picture, you know, the three of them just uh, sitting around chit-chatting in the uh, parlor, the sitting room, whatever. And the social circle was, th the families were close. So the Holmes family, Lily Stilwell's uncle was Charles Jarvis Holmes. So all of these families had been very close and friendly with the Borden family. So there definitely was a, a group of friends that she had and and yeah even moving into later years um and so much is made out of the fact that well what was wrong why why was lizzie borden unmarried uh why was her sister unmarried and if you look at the big picture many of their friends were school teachers which if you were a school teacher back in that period you could not get married because the belief was that if you uh, had your own children you wouldn't care about other people's uh so it gives you a whole different perspective. And, and, and in Parallel Lives, we tried to bring out uh, these things just to give you a sense of, again, her, her surroundings, uh, the people she was close to, and the little network of families that were all um, a part of her growing up and her later adulthood. And she lost her mother when she was very young. Three. She was she, she was quite young, in fact, likely had no recollections Thanks of her not. mother at all. And if she did, the recollections were probably of a woman who was distant and ill. So by her own admission, she, you know, often said that, that, that she would go to her sister as a mother, or she thought of her sister very much as a mother. And supposedly Emma, her older sister, um, had promised their mother um, Sarah Anthony Morse was, was her maiden name, had promised um, their mother that she would always look after baby Lizzie. So, And I think to the best of her ability, she did for the majority of her life until she, I think, came to realize that it was time that she lived her own life. And she certainly did after about 1904. So, And I, there was a description in one of the books about Andrew Borden that he his personality matched his look yeah, you know, no one knew Andrew Borden that, that wrote any of these books. So his look, they're basing it on a, a handful, only a couple of extant images. And when you look at images of Andrew Borden, you know, contemporaneous to the period, he does not look any different than most of his contemporaries. So, you know, his character, 
who really knows what his character was. There's the character of legend, and then there's the fact. And so you have to remember that there are no letters extant in Andrew Borden's hand that have yet surfaced, no business records, no diaries, no journals, nothing. So all you have to go by would be trial testimony or newspaper accounts that, that may be a bias one way or the other. And so it's, it's difficult, I think, to paint an accurate picture of who he was. I think he was certainly very true to that Yankee heritage of frugality, waste not, want not. Um, one of the things that we tried to do with Parallel Lives was sort of profile some of his, contemporary, his contemporaries to give the reader a sense of what things were like in other families. Lily, for example, was constantly complaining about her father being stingy and not giving her the things that she wanted. So, so I don't think that the Borden circumstances were any more unusual than many of Lizzie's contemporaries. Um, I, I really do not believe that Lizzie Borden was deprived of much. And anyone that says she was, my question is always documented. I mean, show me some evidence that can say she was deprived of, you know, basic comforts. And I, I really do not think that that was, you know, that was, that was the case. It makes for a much better story if she was. But in fact, I think it, it, it's unlikely that um, Lizzie Borden's life was as difficult as it sometimes has been um, depicted. So moving, you know, sort of moving, inching towards the, the, the trial and the, the events, um, I think <clears throat> fact versus fiction, we can at least, we can all agree that uh, Lizzie, uh, that uh, Andrew and Abby Borden were killed. Well, we have the photographs to put <laughs> So we can, that, I love that. That's that you can go anywhere you want from exactly. there, but you've got to start with that. And unless they fell both going down the stairs and fell on a, on, on a very sharp object, we don't know what that object might be, but some sharp object that cut open their heads, someone did that. I'm being a little facetious, but so there was a trial and um, leading up to the collection, a lot of the collection, the Lizzie Borden, uh, um, trial collection, if you will, from the crime, um, came from one uh, one source? Well, well it, it, it's been added to. So, so first off, the Historical Society was founded in 1921, and there were a number of people connected with the Historical Society who were, to, to whom this case was very real. And you have to re remember that Lizzie Borden was still living in 1921, and many of these individuals knew her or knew her father or knew her sister, uh, had grown up with them, had and confidants of theirs. So the Historical Society at the beginning, I think in those days, it was something that was not discussed by polite society. So if anyone brought up Lizzie Borden or the Borden case, you simply changed the subject or left the room. Um, so at the beginning, there was not much interest. Certainly some items came into the Historical Society. In the late 1960s, Andrew Jennings' uh, daughter, um, um, Marion Waring Jennings, uh, Marion Jennings wearing, I'm sorry. She and her brother were, were going through some things at the house. And the story is that they discovered this material. That's not the case at all. They knew the material was there. It was not something completely unknown to them. So when it was made public, when rumor got out that they had this material, they were sort of hounded by people that wanted to, to look at the material. So. Ultimately, Mrs. Mrs. Waring, who was a member of the Historical Society, donated that collection to the Historical Society, save a couple of items um, that have since been 
uh, reacquired by the historical society. So the collection is, as far as we know, back to what originally was contained in the in an old hip tub. So it is called the hip bath collection. Since that time, a number of items have have come to the historical society. So the historical society today is is pretty much at the forefront of of certainly I think researching and collecting items pertaining to the case. So when significant items appear publicly appear on the market, then we do have a couple of benefactors who have been very, very good about acquiring those items and donating them to the historical society or providing the funds so that the historical society can acquire them. One of the things we insist on, of course, is, is a trail of provenance. There's a great deal of material out there that's supposed to have belonged to the Bordens. There, there's pretty much a market in it, but we don't get involved in any of that. Now, Dennis, um, there with this collection, um, there I'm assuming there's some notes or the the whatever was the in the period the legal pad of of the defense attorneys. Uh, any smoking guns? Um, not really. Um, a lot of interesting um, atmospheric information, uh, kind of uh, observations um, that were made. Um, we do have journals that were kept by the defense uh, that give a perspective. We also have um, a journal that was kept by the prosecuting attorney in reviewing inquest testimony with his comments on and observations on, on statements that were made during that testimony. In the hip bath collection, we have uh, full transcripts, original transcripts of the preliminary hearing and the inquest with the exception of Lizzie's. But we know Lizzie's because it was published in the newspaper at the time. Uh, we also have um, trial exhibits, uh, physical evidence, forensic evidence, um, exhibit photographs, uh, floor plans of the Borden House that were done by a local architect. Uh, all of these things were presented and many of them are even labeled in pencil as to what exhibit number they were at the trial. So uh, all in all, it's, it's, it's a fairly well-rounded uh, collection that really gives you a sense of what happened on those what, 13 days uh, in 1893. The, now, the notebook that Dennis has mentioned um, is interesting because the notebook is a small notebook that was kept by Jennings and other members of the defense team with, as he said, their personal sort of observations and some notes. And so this was part of the original hip bath collection. It was retained by the Jennings slash Waring family. And one of Andrew Jennings' grandsons had it and was planning on publishing it. And so he began a transcription and he never really got around to finishing it. And so in his will, he left that to the Historical Society with the understanding that we would continue the work and ultimately would, would publish that, which we will do at some point. Where he was in error is that he assumed that the entire volume was compiled by his grandfather, Andrew Jackson Jennings. It was not. There are at least three different hands. We've been able to identify two of them. So clearly there were you know a couple of people on the defense team that were using this notebook the interesting thing there is that a number of the people that they would have interviewed were individuals who were known to them socially so it, it was not as if an attorney or members of a defense team was talking to someone and questioning them someone they weren't comfortable with they were 
known to these people. They were at ease with them. So they gave some sort of interesting insight into different things. Um, of course, your question, was there a smoking gun? No, there's no smoking gun, but, but interesting information. Now, and, and again, because it does get confusing, people say trial. Um, there was a inquest. There was a preliminary hearing. There was a grand jury. And there was a trial. Am I correct? Yes. Correct. Yeah. And so various different things happened at that. And yes. we do know uh, from, again, there's things you'll find in every book, no matter how simple or complex, in that Lizzie did testify without counsel at her inquest or yes. was questioned at her inquest. And that was the only time she ever spoke at an official. Right. She simply said that she left it to her counsel to speak for her. And again, some of the some of the things again that are even you know accepted in the the myth and uh, kind of books is that uh, the there were some contradictions. Uh, again, the only testimony we have is the from her is from the inquest, and they they were you know obviously peppering her with questions and looking for inconsistencies. Right, and and she said on a number of occasions that she was confused, that she was being being asked many questions and they were confusing her. Her physician, Dr. Sibri Bowen, later said that he had given her a sedative and had been giving her a sedative every day for months. She had been given a sedative apparently before the, the inquest testimony. So whether or not that affected her in some way, it, it's hard to say. Um, let's face it, she was either innocent or cold-blooded murderers. I mean, it depends on what you choose to believe. But um, that might have accounted for some of the, the um, inaccuracies or inconsistencies in, in what she said. But of course, I was not there, so I have no idea. The the, uh, the uh, question of sedatives uh, came up at the trial. Uh, that's when that first became uh, public information, and um, she was given a morphine derivative, uh, sulfate of morphia. Uh, at the very beginning, she was given um, a mild sedative, but it wasn't strong enough. She was still distraught, and that's when uh, Dr. Bowen changed the medication. But uh, being on um, sulfate of morphia during the time that she was on the stand trying to uh, present a clear story, of course, could have contributed to her disorientation and inconsistencies. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, again, this is a, uh, a virtual audio tour, uh, some other things that are in the, the Lizzie Borden collection from, from the trial, some of the things. So, that... so any extent trial evidence so any extant material that was presented as evidence at the trial is contained in the Historical Society's collection. So, you know, people obviously like the sort of gory facts. So the uh, bedspread that was on the bed Mrs. Borden was making when she was murdered is in the collection. The two pillow shams, a switch of her hair that fell from her head, a silk handkerchief that she was wearing as a dusting cap is in the collection. The hatchet that was brought into court is the murder weapon, which very likely was not. Uh, but was presented as evidence is in the collection. And then a number of other items that have been acquired since that time, including a number of items that belong to Lizzie later in her life. So, uh, for example, the billy club that was carried by Marshall Fleet, who arrested Lizzie, is in the collection. The dinner pail that um, Lizzie used uh, when she was in the Taunton jail, her food was brought to her from a hotel in Taunton. She did not eat prison fare. She was well taken care of at the jail. It happened that the prison matron and the gentleman who oversaw the prison were old family friends. And in fact, it was through their family 
that that didn't appeal came to the historical society. So again, the question of provenance is pretty tight. So, so there are a number of a number of items. I think some of the interesting things that came in after the fact, I think because of our research, some of her, her personal possessions, again, no doubt as to you know what they what they are. Um, but it was just interesting because those things gave us a different sort of insight into into her life. I think too um, the number of manuscripts that we have in the collection are very uh, significant. Um, it's interesting that uh, people will uh, every once in a while say, oh, I've done extensive research on the case. And um, so we'll say, really, um, where did you do it? Because there is no archive on the Borden case besides the one that's here at the Historical Society. So. So, for example, the, the last film that was uh, produced, which I guess was a fairly major motion picture, I, I, I did not see it. But so before the film was was even filmed, the, the members of the production team were were here. One of the actresses that, that featured in the film was was here and they were talking about the script. And so I asked a couple of questions about about the, the script and asked about the research and was told by by one of the actresses that yes, that, that extensive research had been done by a gentleman in California. When I asked his name, it was a name that was not familiar to me. And so my question was, where did he do his research? Because it is impossible to do any thorough research on this case without the aid of the, of the historical society. So, so it was sort of an interesting, and, and we hear this, you know, we hear this all the time. So. But the um, manuscripts that, that I was talking about, um, we have a collection of the personal papers of Hosea Knowlton, who was the prosecuting attorney, um, nearly 400 manuscripts that we published here. Uh, Michael and I edited the collection, uh, and it was published in 1994. Uh, we have another significant collection of nearly 400 um, manuscripts, cards, letters, documents, uh, that were the property of City Marshal Rufus Bassett Hilliard. Um, we have another collection that was uh, between Edmund Pearson, who was a crime writer, and who died in 1938, uh, the same year that his book, The Trial of Lizzie Borton, was published. And he was loaned the actual Knowlton collection that we have in our collection to use in writing The Trial of Lizzie Borton. So he was corresponding with Knowlton's son. son. Uh, we had all the correspondence that took place while he was working on the, the book. Now, when you say collections, so you have, um, again, I'm, I'm upstairs here in a beautiful drawing room, and I have uh, been on a tour years ago of, uh, you know, the collection where the Lizzie Borden, but you obviously have... Well, well these are archival collections. Car archive, yes. so someone can come here and under your supervision or, or sort of like if you go to the, the Library of Congress, you yes, come and you the, lay things out. For the them. published material is made available. So the Hilliard papers are not yet published. So the transcription is still in the process. And, you know, people have said, wow, you know, why have these things not been made public? Why have they not been published? So it, it takes years and sometimes decades to prepare these items for publication. And until the collection is cataloged and we're fully aware of what it contains, um, we can't make that material public. People also have to understand that there are restrictions placed by donors on some of this material, which of course is not public information, but you know, so the Historical Society has to abide by the wishes of donors. 
um, regarding when material is made public and the manner in which it is made public. And that's how it should be. So there are no smoking guns in any of this material, but it will be made public eventually. There are also other collections of material in private hands that hopefully eventually will be made public. Some of those we're aware of, and um, at some point, you know, we may we may see them, depending on the, the wishes of various individuals. Well, and it's an interesting, this sort of a sidelight for anyone in this kind of situation, this kind of business, in that, like, especially like, let's say, the letters from jail, um, they have a historic, obviously, an extreme historic uh, uh, value, but they're also private. So you're, you're, right. you're weighing someone who's now deceased um, and, and what they wrote that they did not expect to be published. Right. right. So one has to be sympathetic to that. And also, one of the things the Historical Society has always done and has been criticized publicly for doing is we are very cautious about and very careful that the identity of individuals is kept private. We don't share our mailing lists for our membership, but we definitely do not divulge information as regards items that are in private collections. And I think that that is one of the reasons that we've been able to access so much material in private collections, because people know two things. One is that it will be completely confidential. And the second is that with Parallel Lives, it was published by the Historical Society. Dennis and I do not own the book. No one was going to make any money on the book. No one was going to gain financially on a personal level. If any money was made, it would have been made by the Historical Society. So they knew that. They knew that there was no hidden agenda. And the fascinating thing there was when we started meeting some of these individuals, and we, we worked with people all over the world, but when we started meeting some of these people, many of them had books, some of which are considered you know, important texts on the case or on the subject, that were mocked up with things they knew to be inaccurate or with mentions of their ancestors. So people have been following this. What people forget is that although the murders occurred on August 4th, 1892, and Lizzie died in 1927, this is still very real to a number of people. There are a significant number of people out there who have items that are very valuable historically, but that are also very valuable intrinsically, yet they have not made the material public. If they did make it public, it was to the historical society. But none of them have cashed in in any way financially because the items mean that much to them. They're protecting the identity of a woman they never knew, and they're adamant about that. Um, so let's do a little fact or fiction mm -hmm. with the case itself, with the trial. Um, as I said, I'm not an expert by, by any means. There are people out there who live, drink, and, spend, and sleep this stuff. I don't. They sure are. Um, that, <laughs> that was uh, Michael Martin's. Uh, and, and we'll get to that in a moment. In fact, I have a great quote from uh, Mr. Pearson here that I'm, I'm going to share. I know you know it, but I'm going to put it on tape. But. Um, and some of this is particular to particular authors. So we have Victoria Lincoln, who wrote a, a, a book, and she goes into epilepsy. Right. And, is and there any evidence, uh, you know, concrete evidence no. that... So Victoria Lincoln's book, um, the title was perfect. I mean, A Private Disgrace, that's exactly what it was. People of 
certainly Victoria Lincoln's generation, and I knew many of them, were brought up understanding that it was a private disgrace. There were many people who had Victoria Lincoln's book who had it and read it but wouldn't admit it because she was considered by many a traitor to her class by writing it. Of course, she was a writer of a great deal of fiction, and so there were things that she, I think, elaborated on and created. Certainly at the period, the study of epilepsy was something that was kind of at the forefront of, of, of medical research. And so this was something that she and she alone came up with. There's no history of it. It certainly isn't documented. And let me tell you, I knew a number of people whose parents or in-laws spent a considerable amount of time with Lizzie Borden. And had there been any epilepsy, they would have known it. And although they probably wouldn't have written it down, it would have been whispered. And some of that would have, I think, made made it to to, to us. Um, so I think it's it's a fascinating story, but there's absolutely nothing to to document it. Let's, uh, Dennis, let's talk a little bit about um, the hatchets. Um, there was more than one that appeared. And again, the stories, how many were in the basement, how many were brought out, how many, you know, made it to the trial. And as you say, you guys have the uh, handleless hatchet. That, I, they call it the handleless hatchet, I understand it, but it's a head. It's a hatchet head. Well, it's a hatchet head with a small it's, portion with of the hilt still yeah. okay. in it. Okay, yeah. so it's a handle. There's no handle on it, uh, <laughs> but it, it's still a hatchet. And it made it, it, it came into the trial. I believe it was called the hoodoo hatchet in some of the, um, mm -hmm. uh, court, the uh, newspapers at the time. So tell us about, um, you know, what these hatchets. Tell us about uh, what appeared. Well, the handleless hatchet is the one that was taken into the courtroom. That's the one that was analyzed by uh, Dr. Draper, uh, Harvard University. Um, it was said to have fit the bill as far as size and shape. Uh, he is the actual uh, doctor who testified in the courtroom and brought in a satchel with the actual skulls in the bag. And he took it one out and fit the hatchet head into uh, some of the openings in the skull to prove his point. Um, it was uh, quite a dramatic point. It didn't really go over well with the Borden sisters, but um, that's the case. Um, there was a hair on it. It was animal, not human. Uh, it had been covered in ash, uh, usually as a deterrent for rusting. And the handle uh, depends on which police officer you talk to. Uh, the handle was in the box, and when he went back to get it, it was missing. And if you just talk to the other uh, officer and listen to his testimony, there was no handle in the box. Uh, there were other uh, hatchets in, in the cellar as well. Um, I think it's safe to say that there have been more hatchets found in a mile vicinity of the Borden house. Uh, than anywhere else in the world. And the hatchet was, was a standard shingling hatchet. So manufactured as a, a, a shingling hatchet, and you would have found them in every kitchen probably in New England at that period and probably all over the country. So um, it's interesting when you, people refer to it as this handless hatchet because a small portion of the, the hilt or, that, or the, the, the handle is still in situ, so it's still attached, and it's maybe a few inches long. The story is that the force of the blows broke the handle, which is absolutely ludicrous, and all one has to do is look at it 
because clearly if anyone knows anything, a basic information about the way wood would break, the handle is either ash or, or oak, a wood of that type. And certainly when it broke, it would not break cleanly. It would have broken against the grain and would have been quite jagged. So this clearly has been cut. And it was cut certainly before it was found. So perhaps there was a broken handle on a hatchet and Mr. Borden or whoever or being you know, a frugal Yankee decided the hatchet head is still perfectly usable. And so cut off the broken portion of the, the handle and probably burned it and, and, and threw the hatchet head in a box. So interesting thing about that is that when when it was analyzed up at Harvard and Edward Stickney Wood was, was a, a chemist up there who had, had, had looked at some of these things. And so when he looked at, at it, um, found no traces of blood. However, when one reads the autopsy reports in in the wounds on Mrs. Borden's skull, there were small traces of gold foil, of gilt foil. And so where did that foil come from? Well, during the 19th century, and I suspect perhaps today, oftentimes when hatchets are sold, the blade is protected. Certainly in the 19th century, it would not have been uncommon to have a gold foil label over the shop edge. And so what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that the hatchet was likely, or the, or the murder weapon was likely new enough that there were traces of this foil present on the hatchet head and then were transferred into the wounds on Mrs. Borden's skull, which means it's highly unlikely that the hatchet in the Historical Society's collection was the murder weapon. Certainly the prosecution needed a murder weapon and this fit. The defense, I don't think, needed a murder weapon, but in any case, um, the one that has survived was the one that is... Uh, said to be the murder weapon and was was presented you know at that during the trial as evidence um, the guilt part i did did read somewhere else and i was again according to according to what i uh the book i forget which one uh, did mention that that information came to the prosecution after the case was going and they decided not to bring it up, not to go in that direction. For whatever reason, they decided that right. it would not be it helpful. It wouldn't help their case to go exactly. to, in, 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 to in, inject a new theory that, okay, now this one that we're pretending, because it came, we, that, with this one we have, it came from the basement. Obviously, they were looking for a weapon that they could connect to the Borden household if they wanted to right. go with her. If it came from outside, then, then you know, it doesn't help them. It doesn't mean Lizzie's innocent, but it means we don't have a murder weapon that's connected. Right, and you know, Lizzie had been questioned about hatchets and blood and said something to the effect that if, if there was any blood on a hatchet, she knew that her father had, had slaughtered some pigeons. So, you know, it, it wasn't uncommon to have hatchets around houses at that period. Okay, this would not, you brought it up, but this would not lead someone to, certainly not me, to kill someone, but the so the pigeon incident is is absurd. Testimony. It's absurd. It's so absurd. It's foolish. It's foolish. It makes you know. First off, no one made much of the prison of the I'm sorry of the pigeon story until that wonderful film with Elizabeth Montgomery and Andrew Borden is this sort of maniacal Andrew Borden is slaughtering Lizzie Borden's pet pigeons. It's, it's foolish. It's absurd. So so if you read the trial testimony. Um, or the inquest testimony, I'm sorry, when Lizzie is talking about um, about the pigeons, she says something about going into the kitchen and there were pigeons in the kitchen and um, 
some of them it appeared that the heads had been twisted off and she says uh, the skin is quite tender I think or something to that effect so the story of course the legend is that Andrew Borden slaughtered Lizzie Borden's had pet pigeons that she had a dove coat in the, or it was a pigeon fancier, which many people in Fall River were at that period. It was very, very popular. No evidence that Lizzie ever was. But when you read this, 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 this inquest testimony, clearly she wasn't distraught about these pigeons uh, when she said the skin is very tender, I think. So what were they? Well, why else would you have pigeons in a kitchen in New England? They were squab, for God's sakes. They were dinner. So he probably purchased them live and rang their little necks or somebody else did it for him and they were going to eat them. And I don't know if anyone you know, that's listening to this has had squab, but it's very nice. So, so I think that's what they were. But again, the legend is that, that Andrew Borden slaughtered Lizzie's pigeons and she in turn had to do the same thing to him. Foolish. One of the motives um, touted, of course, was greed um, that, uh, you know, the, the estate and whatnot. Take me through at the time because I tried to piece it together and I think I've got it wrong of the law at the time of intestate because they did not find a will. So if my understanding, and please correct me, uh, is that if the owner of the estate, in other words, if Andrew is living and Abby dies and he doesn't have a will, then he dies even two hours later, she's not part of the intestate division or is she? Or right. her, her family? If if. Abby Borden had outlived Andrew even by 10 minutes. She would have been legally entitled to his estate, which meant that her heirs could then lay claim to it because she would have outlived him. And so she would have been his wife and she would have likely received the majority of the estate. I certainly have never made a study of law at the period, but I, I, can't imagine that Lizzie and Emma would have been cut out completely. They were his children, but it's likely that the majority of that estate would have gone to Abby and her heirs could have laid claim to it. So the fact that that Mrs. Borden clearly had been murdered first um, would have made her heirs um, um, no longer entitled to his estate. They certainly were given by the Borden sisters any of Mrs. Borden's assets and her possessions. So. So then, since he died without a will, Emma Borden, being the eldest, would have received the estate. She, of course, immediately divided it between she and her sister, and they shared 50-50 in that estate, which was not anywhere near the size that legend has that it was. So we know he was worth somewhere, I think, between two hundred and fifty and 300000 which at the time was an enormous amount of money. He was a self-made man, extremely wealthy, upper-class businessman. To hear the rest of this fascinating interview with Michael Martins and Dennis Bennett, check out Parallel Lives, The True Story of Lizzie Borden, Part 2.